Welcome, everybody, to the 84th episode of The Jewish Drinking Show. I'm your host, Rabbi Drew Kaplan, and I'm very excited to welcome first-time guest to the show, Professor Mark Shapiro. Welcome, Professor Shapiro. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. My pleasure. So for those less familiar with Professor Shapiro, he holds the Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at Scranton University in Pennsylvania. He is a graduate, an under, uh, undergraduate graduate of Brandeis and a PhD from Harvard. He is the author of numerous books, articles, and reviews. His, amongst his books are Between the Yeshiva World and Mono Orthodoxy and also The Limits of Orthodox Theology, both of which were National Jewish Book Award finalists. Other books of his include Saul Lieberman, The Orthodox, and Studies in Maimonides and His Interpreters. Um, and then he also regularly publishes scholarly articles on the Sfarim blog. So this brings us also to another of his works, which brings us to our topic of this episode, which is Changing the Immutable how Orthodox Judaism rewrites its history, which presents uh, fascinating research, I mean, amongst many things, into censorship and Orthodox publishing, including our specific topic today. So, Rabbi, uh, sorry, Rabbi, um, Professor Shapiro, so we have, um, so the, the topic under discussion is really one one key uh, rabbinic responsum right? Uh, that of Rabbi Moshe Israelis. And uh, it was actually his number 124 in which Professor Shapiro wrote uh, in this book. It is one of the most famous examples of halachic censorship. So that's that's a lot. <laughs> um, it sounds like there's a lot of examples. I mean, you wrote an entire book on uh, examples of censorship uh, specifically you know, from a more traditional or orthodox perspective. So I guess one thing I have to ask is, more broadly, how prevalent um, has Orthodox censorship been? Well, as I described in the book, it's been quite prevalent, and I divide the book into different chapters, focusing on different themes, and one chapter deals with halacha, Jewish law, and it's in the context of that chapter that I mention uh, Rav Moshe Israelis and uh, his well-known responsum that was uh, censored. And what what makes this one, this responsum of Rabbi Moshe Israelis, uh, this number 124, what makes it so famous. You said it was one of the most famous examples. Well, because of who the person is, for Moshe Israelis. Is, mm -hmm. uh, we have the work, the Shulchan Aruch, which is the, the code of Jewish law, and it's really authored by two people, Rav Joseph Caro and Rav Moshe Israelis, who puts in the Ashkenazic uh, rulings. So uh, really, uh, for traditional Jews, uh, you don't get more important than Rav Moshe Israelis. So yes. the fact that uh, the great Rav Moshe Israelis would have a responsible of his censored uh, shows the significance of uh, what, what we're speaking about here in terms of how high censorship could reach, even to the, it's almost like to the throne, you could say, that Ramosa, <laughs> if Ramosha Israelis is not safe from being censored, <laughs> I dare say no one is. Yeah, and, and it involves wine, which, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting contentiousness also to, to this topic right, to this particular responsum? Well, yes, because we're not, and that's the reason it's censored, that we're not dealing with some sort of arcane issue from the past or uh, just uh, some theoretical problem that is being discussed. We're dealing with something that was of everyday relevance, uh, namely uh, non-Jewish wine. Mm -hmm. So uh, the point of censoring the responsum is precisely to have an effect on the present uh, mm. as how people live their lives. The idea was to keep this position, or I should say this uh, elaboration, I should say, of Ramosa Israelis uh, from, uh, from being seen. I guess that's the best way to put it. I think we've done a great job so far of introducing and certainly teasing 
what the content of this, uh, this, I don't know, the censored text under discussion is, I think, you know, for those less familiar with it. So this text is responsive number 124 of his. And for those less familiar, even I think this is one of the first times we've mentioned response on the show. So for those less familiar with responsive, it's basically someone writes a question to a rabbi and they respond. And so this uh, in this particular instance, uh, Professor Shapiro. So this is his 124th and he wrote over 120 of them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He has uh, the, I'm holding the edition uh, right here, and it goes up to 132. Ramos Islas lives in the 16th century, and the question, as it's phrased, we don't know who asked it because it's anonymous, uh, the question, but the person wants to know if uh, there is, if I, that is Ramos Islas, know of any basis for the practice in Moravia. If you look at a map, you'll see Moravia, sort of uh, look in the Czech Republic, which used to be Czechoslovakia, and you'll see uh, Bohemia, Moravia. The practice then, and also in other places, Charmed, you know what he says, to uh, be lenient on this matter of drinking uh, non-Jewish uh, wine, and no one rebukes them. Do they have anything to rely upon from a halachic standpoint that uh, these are, remember, these are regular Jews, not reformers or anything. These are traditional observant Jews. There wasn't a reform movement in the 16th century. And they are drinking non-Jewish wine, something everyone today knows is not kosher. And yet the only people who would drink it would be people who would not identify in, with the observant community. And yet in the days of Mosesilis, uh, this was widespread, specifically mentions Moravia, but also other lands. Maybe mm-hmm. later we can talk about some of the other lands. So that's the question which Mosesilis deals with. Can this be justified in any way? Right. So I want to pause for context for listeners. Um, this is a topic we've discussed previously. Uh, going back, this normative prohibition against drinking Gentile wine uh, from early rabbinic times in episode 71 featuring Professor Avram Shannon on Yenesech, on uh, Gentile libation wine, and then also how this pro- prohibition got qualified in medieval times in episode 83 featuring Professor David Freinrich. So um, so there's definitely rabbinic precedent going right back to rabbinic times. And it sounds like, and also also in the medieval, uh, the medieval rabbis were trying to qualify because they didn't have as much libation going on by Gentiles. And so this... I think it sounds like certainly for these Moravian Jews that they felt that I don't, it doesn't sound like they're necessarily rabbis. They were just sort of part of the hoi polloi, just people that figured eh, what, you know, it's wine, right? Well, there's two things. First of all, there's also the additional reason given uh, it's not clear in the Talmud how binding this is, but by medieval times, it becomes a very important, that is to prevent intermarriage. Mm-hmm. So even if this was wine, uh, which had nothing, nothing to do with, so let's say you're not dealing with idolaters, you still would have the issue of um, intermarriage. Now, um, my feeling is that, uh, as you suggested as well, that you deal with regular Jews, they're not necessarily rabbinic figures, they're <laughs> making their own conclusions. But uh, the fact is, that this is widespread, and it's the question is people are not rebuking them. Mm. So presumably, the people not rebuking them would be the rabbis. Often, rabbis don't rebuke because they feel that you know no one's going to listen to them. So, what's the point? But we yeah. still have to account for widespread avoidance of this prohibition, which is unusual in a traditional society, and lack of uh, response to it. So, therefore, Ramosha Israelis is trying to see, well, maybe we can find some justification for them, because otherwise we have to regard all these Jews as sinners. Mm -hmm. We don't want to regard them all as sinners if we can help it. 
Yeah. And, and that's what I found really fascinating in his opening paragraph, because before he actually launched into the topic itself, he had some introductory sort of meta comments of he was being very cautious and he knew some concerns going into actually dealing with the issues uh, in a in a sort of a more uh, minute detail, but sort of from a broad perspective. At least for me, that's what I found fascinating, that he was very careful. Yeah, and he he says this is, um, he's following in a long trail of early rabbinic authorities that if you can, you want to find some justification. Mm-hmm. Problem is that, uh, as we'll see, this is Rebusha Israelis, you don't want this justification then to be used by other people to who were not drinking uh, non-Jewish wine. So uh, how do you... Uh, you walk know, that fine line. Walk that fine line, and that's that's what the response is about. Now, one other thing we it's important to mention is remember we're not dealing with a time where you can go to the supermarket and buy bottled water, or even drink water from uh, your mm. tap. Water was not people didn't want to drink it. It was not really thought to be safe or healthy. It was dirty. Uh, so um, there was a uh, there was a, I guess you would say strong pressure for people, especially travelers, to drink wine. Mm. And that's what led to uh, to this. The key argument is the notion you mentioned that uh, we're not dealing with wine that's uh, used for libations. And he goes into the, the, the argumentation uh, back and forth. There is still the question of um, of intermarriage, like I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But he does point out that there are other issues. For example, bread. We drink uh, br- we eat bread uh, prepared by the non-Jews, even though there was opinions not to. And uh, he concludes that uh, since today there's no fear of uh, of them offering these as libations, therefore, um, uh, we, he says that we can find with difficulty, we can find a justification. Uh, there's other reasons, perhaps, that uh, if the non-Jews are not really involved in it, in any libations, therefore, if they touch the wine, um, we know it has no, it doesn't uh, forbid it, mm-hmm. but this is their wine themselves. We said that there was a claim made that if they touched the wine, it wouldn't forbid it. So he's going one step further and he, he ends his arguments. We don't need to go to the details that, well, um, I mean, we, I'm, you're welcome to go. If you, okay. Well, that, that's the major yeah. argument that I said. He acknowledges, first of all, that this is not something that you can find earlier rabbinic sources to permit. The most you can permit, for example, is if, uh, you know, you have wine and Anandju will touch it. Uh, we're not going to say this, then you have to get rid of it. But the idea that you can buy wine and drink wine that is produced by non-Jews, we don't have this uh, mm. anywhere else. But then he tries to argue, as I said, moving on from this idea that uh, it's not used for idolatry, that uh, just like there's permission to eat bread that non-Jews uh, make, even though there was an idea you shouldn't do it, so too, he thinks that because of chaye uh, nefesh, in terms he used, because basically mm-hmm. people people need it. It's viewed as... Uh, it's essential. It's necessity. It's essential, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult, he says, to hachshir hayeno, to actually traveling. How are you going to find uh, kosher wine? He says there is nothing for them to drink. This is all they can drink, but just wow. just these wines. And therefore, he says it's different in the bread because the bread officially, non-Jewish bread, was permitted by the sages. But he still thinks that the argument is there. And he does raise the issue of, of marriage. Uh, I do want to go back and point out, I mean, this is Jewish drinking, that, th- that they only had really wine to drink. Yeah. Which is re- pretty fascinating. I don't know if that's a specifically Moravian thing. Times, or, or In medieval times, we know that they were, uh, 
there were the arguments that the same arguments exist in medieval times, but we know that they were very stringent on this and uh, they, uh, they did not take this step. I hope you've been enjoying this episode so far featuring Professor Mark Shapiro. I want to give you a sneak peek into next week's episode featuring Professor Laura Lieber on taverns in the Talmud. Here we go. What is this term even that we talk about this tavern? So I mentioned earlier this phrase, Beit Mishted, drinking house in Tanaitic, earlier rabbinic literature, but we have this other term about 10 times, Beikube, a house of casks, of uh, right? So, yeah. so this is an interesting one, and it has really two, two sort of uses, very broadly speaking. Right? One is that it appears to be a category of a facility, we might say, sort of like a you know, tavern. It's a house of casks. Uh, so it could just be sort of a place that people would go to where all, all the, the kegs are kept mm-hmm. um, and, yeah. and sort of easy access to the to the party supplies. But it also shows up as a place name. I hope you enjoy that sneak peek into next week's episode featuring Professor Lieber. I hope you come back for that. And now back into this episode featuring Professor Shapiro. He raises the issue of uh, intermarriage. Uh, but he doesn't think uh, he, he gives a whole argument to see why we, we shouldn't be bound by that with the change in circumstances if we assume they're not going to be using it for um, libations. But then he says, mm-hmm. I'm not coming here. He, he says, don't rely on what I'm saying. I'm not coming here. <laughs> he uses the phrase to be matara sheretz, to mm-hmm. be make something non-kosher kosher. <laughs> and uh, he says, he says, I say it very explicitly. All I'm doing here is to give, he writes, try to find some justification, but not to rely on it. In other words, mm-hmm. I'm trying, what we're saying is that these people don't regard them as sinners, as heretics, but no one else. He says, especially any other place should, who doesn't follow this leniency should not to follow it. And anyone who does start to break this law he says bad things about them. Uh, you're <laughs> violating the rabbinic laws, and uh, anyone who violates them is chayav mita, deserving of death. So he's, he's he's trying to walk the line here, but he's saying that this is a possible justification. Now this becomes right. significant later, even before we continue with Moshe Israelis, because in the conservative movement, when they're uh, they come out with a response on Rabbi Israel Silverman permitting um, non-Jewish wine, and he cites for Moses Israelis. To which Rabbi David Novak replies, uh, this doesn't make any sense because Ramos Rilisilis is explicit that uh, this is only an ex post facto justification under difficult circumstances. It's not meant, and he specifically says not no other communities should use this. Even without Moses Rilisilis, Rabbi Silverman still could have used the logic he presents there and turned it on its head to say, well, this should be even ab initio. The advantage of all this is that uh, we should regard them at best, these people, at worst, I should say, as what he calls shogagin, mm-hmm. that inadvertent sinners, inadvertent that they, you mm-hmm. know, they, they're relying on this thing, which uh, is really not the best. But he says, uh, there's what they have, what to rely on. And even if we disagree at the be- best, we'll say, well, they're mistaken unwittingly because they're relying on a position, which at least we could find some justification for, even though it's, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. uh, I mean, he does. I mean, one of his arguments is to say that maybe possibly you could give a, a sick person some, you know, maybe some of that. Well, that's yeah, that's later. Once we assume yeah. it's OK, he thinks that you can be lenient if someone's sick, even if he doesn't, there's no danger. Yeah. Um, but then that, that, that that's even moves further. And that's a more conventional ruling than mm. just he's offering a justification of people 
otherwise pious Jews. We're talking about Sabbath observant, mm. regular observant Jews, because yeah, that's all you had in the pre-modern communities, mm-hmm. who uh, started drinking uh, non-Jewish wine. Yeah. Uh, it's a phenomenon of, uh, of our history. Yeah. So, okay. So it's this ex post facto justification that he provides is, I guess, um, is not taken kindly afterwards, right? Well, I, I would even think that perhaps the people who censored his writings might have thought that Ramosa Isolus would be happy we censored him precisely because they might have justified it by saying if he was around today, he'd see that despite what he wrote, people would be inclined to, as Rabbi Yisrael Silverman does, to actually use the responsum to justify <laughs> further violation of this law. So uh, I'm speculating here, but the reason for removing the response in two separate printings, different publishers, was because of a fear that this would lead people to do exactly what uh, Ramosis was worried about. They would read it and read this response and say, well, you see, it's not so bad. It's not so terrible. Mm -hmm. Justification can be offered. Maybe I won't drink this at home, but if I'm on the road and... uh, this is this has practical implications. So so much so that when the, interesting when the responsum after it was censored later, rabbis didn't even realize they saw references to this responsum. They thought uh, that it couldn't be authentic. It must have been put in by various <laughs> uh, uh, the um, and the the chayyadim of Ravram Danzig actually who knew about this responsum was convinced it was put in by some troublemakers her- heretics because <laughs> they couldn't believe it. Um, Wow. And that, that's the, and it only was put in again in the edition published by Rabbi Asher Siv in 1971, this edition hmm. published in Jerusalem. But the, look, the responsum is cited, it's quoted uh, by uh, so many people. So uh, I mean, they didn't know it, it was authentic other than a few, mm-hmm. but uh, the idea of you wanted to remove it because of what this could lead to, and perhaps it could flood to things like that. We know, for instance, in other countries as well, they did not drink uh, kosher wine and not drink they drank non-jewish wine i should say and they would have been all too happy to see such a response and justifying them so it, it sounds almost like that they, i mean look in the language that he used he was very clear he's not to be relied upon you know from a from a perspective from a ab initio perspective um but it sounds like these later rabbis certainly the censor the people who censored his this particular response and were concerned and it also sounds like people really, certainly in, in those places, in those times, were very willing to be drinking Gentile wine. Yes. Well, for, so for instance, in Italy, mm-hmm. Italy, they drank Gentile wine. Mm-hmm. Into the second half of the 20th century, Rabbi uh, Toaf, <laughs> uh, sorry, Rabbi uh, Professor Toaf from bar his father was the chief rabbi of Rome, uh, Rabbi Toaf. He told me that in his family, as all the other rabbinic families in Italy, in, even in the 20th century, they drank um, um non-Jewish wine. Uh, one of the greatest authorities, uh, Shmuel Katzenellenbogen in Venice, uh, he huh. permitted it. Uh, and so in Italy, it had rabbinic uh, authority. Wow. Other places we have references to rabbis who permitted it. We don't have really their justifications, but this was this was a practice and you can make a very good halachic case for it uh, based upon the idea that it's no longer applicable uh, because uh, it's not used for idolatry. The problem is you can make the halachic case, but the halachic sources don't say this. It's sort of like an independent uh, halachic case you're making, which uh, the conservative movement was very happy to make that, but traditional post scheme could not go that far. There's a rabbi uh, named Coronel, and he was a traveler, came from Eretz Yisrael. Um, 
he wrote a sefer called Zecher Natan, and he says that if you're in Italy um, and you see them drinking this, don't rebuke them. That's their practice. So uh, wow. he's also not arguing ab initio, but we know that there were rabbinic figures in Italy. It was a dispute in Italy. Oh, really? Rabbis who opposed this as well. Hmm. Uh, but we know that it was done, and uh, we have evidence in other places as well of the yeah. masses. Not so much the rabbis. Italy is the only place I know where you really had rabbis uh, on board with this. Yeah, well, there were uh, what I found fascinating in your book was uh, various rabbis writing permitting, uh, you know, Gentile wine. Which yeah, is, I, I give a, a couple of there, but yeah. not, you know, we don't really have a rabbinic culture that permits it, except for right. in Italy, you had a partial rabbinic culture in early years. And by the 20th century, according to Professor Toaf, this was pretty standard. But Italy, mm-hmm. Italy is a bit of a, um, you, I don't want to call it reformist because there's no reform in Italy per se, but they were doing things that would have been regarded as reform elsewhere. So for instance, they had organs in synagogues uh, hmm. played by non-Jews, which hmm. uh, in Western Europe, that becomes a classic example of reform. But in mm-hmm. Italy, uh, it just was a sort of evolution. And uh, also, I should say, you didn't have the greatest rabbinic figures in the 19th and 20th century in Italy. Hmm. And that could have led to the development of uh, certain leniencies in these areas. Mm-hmm. So so I love in your book, right, reading about these different, even the, wasn't there a commentary on the Mishnah that said something about this as well? Well, there's a commentary on the rush. It's called the Kabbalah Natanel. And just okay. right in the middle of it, he has a response in which he, it's very conventional, but in the Kabbalah Natanel, they're just right in the middle. He says that uh, today it should be no, it's no problem drinking from non-Jews. Now that's not a halachic <laughs> text. It's a, it's a commentary, commentary text. Yeah. So you have to, it obviously is trumped by his response. But the fact that he throws that out, uh, I also <laughs> mention uh, Rabbi Yosef Messas. Mm. Uh, Masas, who was a chief rabbi of Haifa, but a rabbi came from Meknes in Morocco, has many, many unusual ideas. And he also argued that uh, <laughs> it wasn't, uh, an, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be an issue, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Hello, dear listeners. It's your host, Rabbi Drew. I wanted to break in right now and just say, hey, A, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate or watching however you're consuming this content. And I'm always open for new ideas both for specifically the Jewish Drinking Show, whether it's topics, whether it's guests. I'm also looking for other resources that I can provide you with in the Jewish Drinking Project more broadly. Also, you know, I'd really like to offer you the opportunity to, to sponsor this work. Whether If you want to go to patreon.com slash jewishdrinking, I would greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you have ideas for swag, also, please feel free to send them to me at drew at jewishdrinking.com. All right, thank you so much, Lachaim, and now back into the episode. Getting back to the the censorship aspects, so I mean, I, I just thinking about the the censorship. I'm I'm really also curious. Generally, what drives censorship? I imagine it's an anxiety about. Uh, I mean, with this, it's about contemporary practice, even when it was centuries ago, but even uh, even in the centuries following the publication of his uh, his responsa, it sounds like there was a, a rabbinic anxiety towards people reading this and and putting potentially these things into practice right that's always the case uh, mm-hmm. for censorship if that you're worried that uh, people will often it's the masses uh, but uh, I, I wouldn't say per se in the case of this the masses because they're not reading responses but you can mm-hmm. say there's a Talmudic expression of rabbis who haven't uh, haven't served the greater rabbis <laughs> very well <laughs> enough uh, 
You don't want to have the option out there. That's what motivates mm-hmm. a censorship, that you'll have uh, second-level rabbis uh, making decisions on their own, uh, mm-hmm. especially on a matter that's so significant, wine, which we constantly need. Uh, it's, it's Yeah. It, it's not a, it, it doesn't pop up irregularly. Yes, but that's the theme of the book. Yeah. Uh, throughout, you're always yeah. going to have the, these issues. Yes. Yeah. So I I found it that I found it particularly fascinating that in that you had mentioned specifically this Gentile wine issue being, yes. uh, you know, a, a censorship issue that was one of the most famous ones. It happened to be a wine and drinking one, and especially as you mentioned, the way that he writes about it, there really isn't much, wasn't much to drink in these places uh, except for wine. I mean, even the, the water wasn't so drinkable, so. It's just such a fascinating uh, intersection of, of, of both Jewish oh. drinking and of censorship. Also, because wine became a big issue. Uh, there was a cherims put on people who drank wine. There were special blessings made for people who sorry, who abstained from drinking this wine. The Maharal of Prague speaks a lot about this. It, Non-Jewish wine assumes such a demonic character mm. among certain rabbis that the, there even becomes a practice not to look at uh, uh, non-Jewish wine. So... Wow. At the same time, you have these leniencies I discussed in the chapter as well. You have extreme stringencies uh, when mm. it comes to wine, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, wine, that, that, that is exactly what the sage just spoke about. That opens the door for intimacies with the non-Jews. Mm. And uh, so certain rabbis in Italy perhaps were not so concerned about this, but other rabbis were very, very concerned. But you get a sense, I mentioned in my yeah. book on page 98, that he has a Misha Beirach, a special Misha Beirach prayer for those who abstain from non-Jewish wine. The fact that you have to have a special Misha Beirach shows you that people were inclined to violate it. So therefore, you're going to praise <laughs> the ones uh, who are not. Now, today, we don't have such an issue because we have all sorts of good uh, uh, kosher wine. But uh, in those yeah. days, you see already that it was a... Uh, there was an inclination. People had this, yeah. uh, it, not an evil inclination per se. It was just a, it was a hard commandment, a hard halacha to follow, especially mm-hmm. when you were traveling and uh, you couldn't find real you know, water to drink of uh, healthy water. So uh, that's why uh, you give a special Misha Beirach for this, because it shows <laughs> that people were really uh, extending themselves. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's amusing to hear about sort of the, the opposite direction, this, you know, the, this extra emphasis on avoiding Gentile wine. Yeah, well, I think it's sort of in response. Yeah. At the same time that people were being lenient on it uh, as a way to strengthen the prohibition, you uh, move in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Professor Shapiro. This has been a really fascinating and insightful uh, discussion. And thank you so much for sharing these insights. So thank you. Uh, pleasure being here and good luck on the podcast. Absolutely. And uh, is there anything you want to promote aside from this book that we've been focusing on, on Changing the Immutable? Well, the new book isn't out yet, so uh, <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Uh, the what's, the immutable. what's the new book? New book about uh, on Ruth Cook. And uh, uh, hopefully it will not be too too long till it sees the later day. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. In the meantime, people can still read your your content you keep coming out with on the Sfarin blog, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, I always find it fascinating. So. I imagine listeners of this show may find it fascinating as well. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Professor Shapiro and L'Chaim. 